We're in a series on the end times titled Endgame, what we know about what's to come. And we actually know a lot about what's to come because God is in charge of history. And he is marching history toward a predetermined end and no one and nothing can thwart the purposes of God. And God who knows what's coming has revealed some of that to us. Not all of it, but some of it. Enough that we can make choices today about the future that honor the Lord. So he's given us everything we need to know, not necessarily everything we want to know, right? And so when you study what the Bible says about what's to come, you are left with unanswered questions. That's the reality. And we have to be okay with that. Because if we demand a tidy end time timeline, it can make us prone to listening to false teachers or claiming the Bible says more than it says. If you've missed any of the sermons, and I know some of you have, you can catch up online, clearwater.church. Yes, uh, I did too. I was in Florida. Thank you for pointing out my hypocrisy. Yes. But I'm back. I am back. Clearwater.church. You can, you can uh, catch up online. So, the, today we are talking about the Antichrist. The Antichrist. The, oh yeah, the red. I like it. Yes. Behind the Antichrist is that devil, is the devil. The term antichrist means rival Christ. Anti in Greek is instead of or in place of. So God has sent the Christ, the Messiah. And then Satan, who's always counterfeiting, provides an, an, a rival, an alternative. This uh, eschatological opponent of God's Christ. Now, the term Antichrist is only used twice in the Bible, both of them by the Apostle John, First and Second John, in those letters. But there are other places in Scripture where we think the Bible's talking about the Antichrist and just using different terms. But let's start today uh, with First and Second John. So if you have your Bibles, turn to First John chapter 2. Here's what we read. Children. It is the last hour. And we talked about that week one. We are living in the last days. When Christ came the first time, he inaugurated this last hour, this, these last days. And when he returns, then it's over. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so the Christians in John's day had been told an Antichrist uh, a rival Christ, an opponent to God's Messiah, will be coming. As you've heard that, so now many Antichrists have come. I like to think of the Antichrist that will come at the end of human history as Antichrist with a capital A, and then these many Antichrists that have plagued the church all throughout the church age as Antichrist little a. So now many antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So these many antichrists that were plaguing the church in the Apostle John's day, so right off from the beginning, they were actually inside the church, right? They started out as professing Christians, and then they, they left the church uh, over a, a dispute about who, in fact, is Jesus. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, Greek term for Messiah. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So there we have a definition of Antichrist, as one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. The Antichrist has two tactics, uh, deception and persecution. And John is here talking about this first tactic, which is the tactic of deception. Uh, and often that deception uh, comes from within the church through false teachers who try to paint a, port, uh, a picture of Jesus that is not the real picture. Right? First John chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Spirit of the Antichrist. So now we've moved from uh, not a person, but a, a teaching, right? So there, there can be a, 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 a theology, an ideology that is Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist. Then if you go to Second John, verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So, in First and Second John, uh, John is focused on the antichrist as uh, the spreader of false teaching about who Jesus is. Uh, Kim Riddlebarger a theologian, summarizes John's point as this, quote, Antichrist is any heretic who denies the full humanity or deity of Christ. Even in John's day, many Antichrists had risen to plague the church. Here we are, thousands of years later, and our list of the Antichrists who have been bothering the church is much longer. Mormonism. Mormonism says Jesus is the Son of God, but not the way the Bible means it. Jesus is the Son of God in the same way that you and I can be sons of God if we just live up to our full spiritual potential. Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses maintain that Jesus is not actually uh, God. He, there, there is no trinity. 
right? And yet these people think of themselves, Mormons, they claim to be Christians. Islam, Islam says Jesus was a great prophet and we should listen to Jesus, but he's not God. Modern Judaism, Jesus was a rabbi, but not the Messiah. We're still waiting for the Messiah. Liberal Christianity, right? Many, many, many who claim to be Christians and they have church buildings and denominations and they say Jesus was a great moral teacher and they, they like to get together and talk about what he said, but they do not believe that Jesus Christ was the son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity who left heaven and came to earth and went to the cross to die in our place and pay the penalty for our sins and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity burst forth from the grave to conquer the power of sin and death. No, 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 no. So the, the Antichrist, the goal of the Antichrist is to keep people from Jesus. That's, that is Behind the Antichrist is Satan, and that's Satan's goal to keep people from Jesus. He doesn't want people to get saved. And one of the primary tactics the Antichrist uses is to spread false teaching about who is Jesus in the world. And so that people can respect Jesus and even study what he said and apply some of what he said to their lives, but they're not trusting in him as the Savior God intended. And churches, right, churches are told repeatedly in the Bible to be uh, watching out for false teaching in the church, to call it on the carpet, to not tolerate it. Uh, all Christians, the Bereans were commended because the, the average everyday Christian thought, thought carefully about everything that was being taught them and compared it to what the scriptures taught. One of the key roles of the uh, of the elders in a church. Uh, in fact, I'd say it's the key role of the elders is to ensure that, that the doctrine is pure. A big deal. So, in First and Second John, the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, you know, it's all, many Antichrists have already come and it's all about false teaching uh, to keep people from Jesus. Now turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, and he, he's talking here about the man of lawlessness, which many believe uh, is just another title for uh, the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. That day is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's not going to come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The rebellion is probably talking about the period of the Great Tribulation. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. Uh, I think that that's another term for the Antichrist. The son of destruction. There's another title. Who, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Oh, by the way, um, if you notice, Paul's thinking about the man of lawlessness as 
still to come in the future, certainly in his day, and uh, we would say hasn't yet arisen uh, because the end hasn't come. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So the, uh, this man of lawlessness, and why that title, by the way? And lawless people don't care about uh, obeying God, right? They don't, they don't care about pleasing God at all. And this guy... Uh, this man of Lotus is, is opposed to all religion and all worship except that which is for himself. And, and then there's a big, there's a big debate uh, as to whether or not, not this, um, the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness is an actual individual or whether uh, these are personifications of some, maybe the state, Right? The, the government, secular government or government that's claiming uh, the, to be in the place of God and demanding a human allegiance and worship. Verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Actually, I don't know. I don't know what is restraining him right now. <laughs> Uh, apparently, Paul's people did, but uh, there's no consensus. Uh, some people say, oh, maybe the Holy Spirit is restraining. Maybe it's the church. Maybe it's Michael, the, the angel. We're not sure. But right now, this man of lawlessness is, is being restrained and has not yet been revealed. So he hasn't yet come onto the scene of history. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. I think that's like the spirit of the Antichrist, the mystery of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness hasn't yet come onto the scene of history, but the mystery of lawlessness, the same, the same spirit, uh, is at work even already. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I love that. Uh, the Antichrist is going to work feverishly to oppose Jesus. But it's, it's all going to come to nothing. All the efforts of Satan and his Antichrist, this Mr. The man of lawlessness, it's all going to come to nothing. Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth the lawless one and bring, him, bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It's going to all, all uh, the, the intentions and wicked acts of the Antichrist will, will come to nothing. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So when the, the lawless one, when the Antichrist comes onto the scene of history, it will be accompanied with false signs, with wonders, Verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, I, f I find that very interesting. 
that God is going to send a strong delusion so that people believe what is false. And I think that it was saying God's essentially helping out (laughs) the Antichrist's deceptive uh, work. And, but I think it's very important to note who it is that is deceived, who it is that believes in the Antichrist and follows the Antichrist. It's those who are perishing, verse 10, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So people who refuse to love the truth and refuse to be saved by Jesus, the real Messiah, the real Christ, and by the the, the gospel. In verse 12, that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So these people who had already hardened themselves to the gospel and to Jesus Christ, uh, they, they then, because they won't embrace Jesus as their Messiah, they then are uh, deceived into embracing this alternate, this rival Christ, the Antichrist. And it's, part of it is the discipline of God. He sends them a strong delusion. There's nothing, there's nothing uh, worse than for your eyes to be blinded to the good news of Jesus for you so that you, you don't recognize I desperately need to be saved and Jesus is that Savior, please save me. If your heart is hardened to that and your eyes are blinded to that, that is the discipline of the Lord upon you. And that's a terrible place to be. You don't want to be there. So don't say no while it is still today. So we've looked at uh, First and Second John, we've looked at Second Thessalonians. Now we're going to go to Revelation. This is the other place in the New Testament where the Antichrist is spoken of. Uh, I suspect that Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, also had the uh, Antichrist in mind uh, in some of his discussions about the beast. But the Apostle John in the New Testament seems to pick that up also. We're going to spend most of the time in Revelation 13. So go ahead and Revelation chapter 13. And here the Antichrist is described as a beast. Revelation 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth like a lion's mouth. Uh, Everybody recognizes that John is using imagery of a beast to represent something else, right? We don't actually... God gave him this vision, uh, but, you know, nobody that I know of believes that there's going to be an actual seven-headed beast rising out of the sea. It's, it's, a, it's a symbol. It's, it's representing something else. And then the question becomes, what's this representing? Um, what seems most plausible to me is that it's representing a kingdom or a king. 
And that's because this beast imagery is definitely used by the uh, prophet Daniel and seems to be picked up here by John. And Daniel refers, uh, Daniel's beasts uh, are king, kings and kingdoms, always. Always, else, elsewhere in the Bible, the imagery of a beast is always used to describe or represent a kingdom. Now, is the Antichrist a, you know, a, a person or a, or a system or a kingdom? That is debated. It could be this Antichrist is the kind of the head of that future kingdom or state. I like what Robert Mount says. Uh, he's a, a specialist in Greek. The beast has always been and will be in a final intensified manifestation the deification of secular authority. So the imagery of the beast, it's always this deification of secular authority, which, um, yeah. What's that? In English? <laughs> In English, he's saying, he's saying that um, your allegiance is to government uh, and not to God. And you, you allow the, the government to be your savior and the government to call the shots in your life. You worship, you worship secular government or government trapped in religious, like you know, back in Roman days when the emperor was also claimed to be God, right? Which was probably in John's mind because that's, that's what he was living in. And so when the government tells you to do A, B, or C, and it's contrary to what Jesus has told you to do, you know, where's your, who are you going to obey? What are you going to trust in? And this was very pertinent to Christians living in, in uh, John's day because the Roman Empire began to persecute the Christians. And they were repeatedly put into a position where they had to choose, am I going to follow Jesus or do what the empire tells me to do? That might have been the best part of the whole sermon. Your demand for some clarity. Okay, and two, we're here, in, now we are in verse two. And to it, the dragon, to the beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. The dragon is Satan. And so behind the beast is the power of Satan. One of its heads, verse 3, one of its heads, the beast, seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. This is obviously Mikhail Gorbachev. <laughs> I'm kidding, but some actually even said that. Wrong. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority, his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast? And who can fight against it? So what does it mean to worship the beast? Does it mean to bring, you know, uh, sacrifices? Maybe. Uh, but maybe, if, especially if the beast is, is a state, maybe worship of the beast is giving it, pledging your allegiance to it, giving, your, uh, giving it your fidelity, viewing it, uh, being enamored with it as the, as the greatest power, the one that can take care of you and save you 
and, and uh, elevating it above uh, your view of God. Verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Uh, two things. Uh, note, I want you to, first off, notice it was allowed. It was allowed. Who's allowing it? God is allowing it. We, always keep, we have to always keep this in mind. I, I, I say this quite often, but the worldview that the Bible gives us is not yin and yang. You know, uh, good and evil in this tussle with each other, and sometimes, you know, God's up and sometimes Satan up, and you, but you never quite know who's going to win because they're sort of equal powers. No, there is God who is supreme on his throne who calls the shots, and even the dragon, even Satan and, and the Antichrist, in, in a sense, work for him. <laughs> they're, not doing, they're not doing his will, and yet they're helping accomplish his ultimate purposes. And they can't do anything without God's permission. We, we saw that all the way back in the book of Job, right? Where Satan, who is so wants to strike at Job, has to go get God's permission. He just can't act in the world uh, with, without God's approval. Second thing I want you to know here is that the beast makes war on the saints. That's Christians, Okay, so the, the Antichrist is going to make war on the saints. He recognizes Christians as a threat because Christians don't worship the beast. Christians worship Jesus, the real Messiah. And it was allowed by God to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So God allows the Antichrist to kill Christians. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Verse 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the church has been plagued by many antichrists. Um, so, by the way, John was talking about the tactic of false teaching, right? Now, now John, that was back in his, in his letters, now John is here, because it's the same author, John's who, uh, talking in Revelation, he's now talking about the tactic of persecution. So, uh, in his first two letters, it's false teaching in the church to lead people astray, and now he's talking about persecution of Christians from outside, probably a government power of some sort, that is pressing in on the people of God and persecuting them for their faith in Jesus Christ. Making war on the saints and, and to conquer them. Now, so throughout time, throughout history, there have been, and you think of Nero, you think of Stalin, uh, communist parties, and that have you know, made it illegal to be a Christian, who have, you know, if nothing else, things like, you know, when I was in Russia as a missionary, talking to some of those Christians who had been faithful uh, under communist uh, Russia, they told me, 
our kids could not go to the best schools. No way. We could not get the best jobs. And I saw it. You know, it wasn't that, communism wasn't that far removed. And many of these Christians who'd been faithful under communism, they had the lowest paying jobs. They were the janitors of society. Uh, and, and that's because they, they had been kept out of uh, the, the ability to get the right education, get the, the, the jobs. It had been a, you know, even though they weren't necessarily, although I talked to one guy, he was like, ah, see that building right there? That's where the KGB took me and beat me. KGB is a KGB right there. So, yeah. So in the past, the people of God have had these localized oppression, right? But in this in the future, it's going to be, this Antichrist will have power over the entire world. In other words, all Christians on the face of the planet are going to be uh, come up under the power of this Antichrist. All people in the world will. Therefore, everyone will worship it, the beast, except the Christians. Only Christians will refuse to worship the beast because... We, we worship only God. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now that you might want to write, you might want to underline that. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Listen to, listen to what's coming. And I think what he's saying here is, you know, read it this way, verse 10. Mike, Mike, if it is God's will for you to be taken captive, then go to captivity rather than worship the beast. If anyone is to be slain, Mike, if it is God's will for you to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Go, rather than worship the beast. You stay faithful to Jesus Christ. And what did we read back in chapter 2 of Revelation? You know, those Christians who remain faithful and die will be given the crown of life. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. I'm telling you what's coming. (laughs) But you don't give in to the beast. Now we're in verse 11. In verse 11, another beast comes on the scene. The first beast came out of the sea. This beast comes out of the earth. And the second beast is not the Antichrist, but rather the false prophet whose whole purpose is to cause people to worship the beast. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Uh, Pastor James this week was trying to uh, explain to me what dragon speak sounds like. That's that's where we go when we prepare our messages. <laughs> it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Yeah, and it uses force to do it. <laughs> Whose mortal wound was healed. It Verse 13, it performs, so this second beast, this false prophet, performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Who gives this false prophet the the power to do that? Satan. 
And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Verse 15, And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Aha! Who's going to refuse to worship the image of the beast? The Christian who wants to be faithful to Jesus. Verse 16, And also it causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, nobody's going to escape the demands of the false prophet on behalf of the Antichrist. It's going to cause all to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. You've heard about the mark of the beast. This is where that comes from. So the false prophet is going to cause all, he's going to demand, require that everybody get the mark of the beast on either the right hand or the forehead. And without it, you cannot buy or sell. You're cut out of the economy. So if you refuse to worship the beast, you might be killed. If you refuse to get the mark of the beast, then you're going to have some economic hardship. Is the mark of the beast an actual physical mark? You know, or junk, junk, some big stamp. Is it a little microchip that goes underneath and uh, without it you can't buy or sell because cash has gone away? I don't know. I don't know. It could be that it's just a symbol for some kind of, you know, a, a, a way that you've declared, some other way that you have declared your allegiance to, uh, to the Antichrist. I'm not sure. But I know that there will be pressure to get it, and there will be consequences if you don't. Either death or economic hardship. Verse 18. So, there's pressure, right? There's pressure being put on the people of God by the Antichrist to uh, abandon Jesus and embrace, or, you know, abandon your faith to shift your allegiance and shift it over to the Antichrist. Verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And Pastor James has all that information. Just go talk to him after the service. I believe there are Christians who worry that they might unintentionally get the mark of the beast. They get snuck up on, I didn't know it was the mark of the beast. And, uh, and I got it. And, and why is it a big deal? Well, a couple chapters later, in chapter 14, we are told very clearly that those who worship the beast, those who get the mark of the beast, suffer the same fate as the Antichrist and the false prophet. They are thrown into the lake of fire where they are tormented forever and ever without end. 
So it's a big deal. Yeah, I can understand. We, we don't want to get the mark of the beast. We're not going to get it unawares. It's going to be as evident to us as it was to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we are being given a choice to be faithful to God or to, uh, or to be unfaithful, to apostatize, uh, to embrace a false messiah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Big statue of Nebuchadnezzar. You bow down to the statue or we throw you into the fiery furnace. They knew they had a choice. And they said, throw me into the fiery furnace because we bow down to God and only God. It's going to be that clear. Uh, you did not get it with the vaccine. They didn't slip it in there somehow, and, right? That's what I'm talking about. You're not, it's not going to sneak up on you you will know I am being asked to apostatize, to abandon my faith in Jesus Christ for another. Revelation chapter 19, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Who's sitting on the horse? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so... The beast, the Antichrist, has gathered the kings of the earth with their armies to make war against our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no battle. Because there's... I don't care what you've gathered. Jesus, with just a word, and it's over. Right? With the word of his mouth, he kills his enemies. So there's no record of any war here. We just, we just read this. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Satan, who is just determined to strike at God by striking, by keeping people from getting saved. And he works so hard and he works so tire, tirelessly and he, and, and he has such plans and they're going to all just come to naught. At the end of the day, the Antichrist is defeated and punished for all eternity. And Jesus Christ and his people who have been faithful even under this great persecution, who have been faithful even in the midst of false teaching swirling within the church, have refused to buy into the false teaching. They've stayed faithful to, the, for, to orthodoxy. They have remained faithful to what was passed down to us by the apostles. They didn't latch on to any of the new, shiny, flashy ideas about Jesus Christ. Those people will enter into life eternal with their Lord. In your bulletins, I have 10 takeaways. Let me end with this. Number one, the Antichrist's goal is to keep people from Jesus. God has sent the Messiah. You can be saved from your sin and from the punishment that is coming because of our sin 
but it's only through Jesus. Number two, the Antichrist tactics are false teaching and persecution. Number three, Christians have already endured many Antichrists. Verse four, in the final years of history, an Antichrist, capital A, will rise with global influence so that no one will be able to escape his demands or its demands. Five, Christians already know how to resist the Antichrist. We've been doing it for thousands of years by staying faithful to gospel truth even to the point of death. Number six, focus less on identifying who the final Antichrist will be and more on identifying the spirit of Antichrist or the mystery of lawlessness that's already in the world seeking to keep you from Jesus. Seven, everyone who gets the mark of the beast will know, they'll know they're choosing Antichrist over Jesus Christ. Don't need to worry about getting tricked. Well, the deception, there will be deception, but the deception is you're better off following the Antichrist than you are Jesus. Verse 8, the power of Antichrist will be dominant for a time, which will result in persecution of the believer, but in the end, the Antichrist will be defeated and punished by Jesus Christ. Number nine, those who worship the Antichrist and receive his mark will suffer the same fate as the Antichrist and the false prophet. So the stakes are high. <laughs> you don't abandon Jesus Christ without there being serious, eternal consequences. Don't do it. Jesus said, who should you fear? The one who can kill the body or the one who can kill the soul? Paul talks about this, the, the light and momentary troubles of the day. And he, he didn't say they're easy. He knew that sometimes that meant death itself. He died. He was a prisoner. He was beaten. He, he knew how bad it could get. But in light of eternity, it's light and it's momentary. Do not abandon Jesus Christ so that you can economically prosper in this temporary world, or so that you can save your skin in this temporary world. Number 10, determine now that you will not apostatize or compromise your faith. Lord, thank you for the warning. We trust in your grace provided us by your spirit to keep us faithful to the end. I know mine. No one can snatch them out of my hand. We put our trust not in our faithfulness. We put our trust in your power that indwells us by your Holy Spirit to preserve us to the end. Help us, God. Amen.